you come to the site and you see it and it kind of traps you. It's, it's one of those feelings where, um, you can feel the history, you can feel the soul, and you just want to be a part of it. Whiskey, whiskey! So I'm here with Marion Barnes from Castle and Key, master distiller, partner. Uh, you have um, an incredible career. Uh, you've been at uh, Wood- Woodford Reserve. Uh, you've had a career there, and they basically brought you here into this operation. Uh, it's a beautiful distillery, Old Taylor, uh, which I know a lot of whiskey geeks love to talk about. Uh, can you describe the property here for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. The The property is, is unlike anything else in, in Kentucky and maybe in, in, um, in the state, I mean, in the country. So Colonel Taylor built this distillery with a lot of European influence <clears throat> because that's where he learned to distill. So he wanted to build a show place, a place to entertain. It was kind of um, his the culmination of, of his career. So he, he was involved as a lot of people know in several distilleries in the state. But when he finally got to a point where he was able to build his vision and create the brand that he wanted to make, it was through the old Taylor distillery that he was able to do that. So what he did, yeah, right here, um, right in the the heart of Millville, Kentucky. So he built a, you know, beautiful, uh, limestone castle, probably built with Kentucky limestone that was brought in on horse and carriage back in those days, a, um, a spring house that holds 140,000 gallons of water that is more reminiscent of a Roman bath than, you know, your typical um, Southern spring house and then formal gardens. The architecture here is, is stunning and definitely um, European. And then the, um, the warehousing and, and really every building that he touched had some beautiful architecture and, and something that made a statement um, because he certainly wasn't shy about saying that this was the most beautiful, magnificent and perfect place to make bourbon. There's a train station here. That's that, that <laughs> blew me away. I'm like, why would there be? I mean, there's a practical reason to have a train station, mm-hmm. but it's just it was his train station with his name on it. Uh, and so um, you got into this project very early. Mm-hmm. It was I mean, the property here is beautiful. The The landscaping is beautiful. You've got these old restored buildings, uh, the biggest warehouse in the world. I had no idea. Uh, uh, it's incredibly long. Uh, think of the longest warehouse that you've ever seen at any distillery and multiply it by three. I don't know. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. ridiculously long. It's yeah. like the size of three warehouses. I don't know. Right. Almost two football fields long if you can imagine yeah two football fields long um you're not doing any tours now we, we should say this right off the bat there's no tours right now at uh at castle and key but that is not going to be an option later on in the yeah, year yeah absolutely so we, we've been working really hard for the past uh nearly three years now to get the place well a little over three years now <laughs> we just passed into may so it's it's been you know a lot of hard work if you can imagine so I described it as this beautiful European uh, garden, romantic. But when we first came here and saw the site, particularly Will Arvin, my, my partner, um, he calls himself a recovering attorney, <laughs> the first gentleman. And really the reason why we're all here is because of his crazy vision um, and, and desire, passion. Um, but the realtor that brought him out the first time had a machete. 
because you couldn't get into the buildings. <laughs> you couldn't get from one end to the other. It really looked like the Walking Dead, post-apocalyptic war zone. Like you, it's it's hard to imagine, you know, how far we've come. And people who come here today still, you know, kind of cringe a little bit because they're like, oh, there's still so much to do. Well, the the plan it has never been to return it to this perfect, pristine Disneyland. We hmm. want it to maintain the patina, to feel historic, so that it tells the story. Um, it was old. It was beautiful and in and, and uh, one time, and then it was abandoned, and people forgot about it. But now it's coming back to life. So we wanted to to tell all of those stories and and for people to feel that as they walk around. Maybe you walk around a corner. It's a little bit gritty and dirty, but hopefully not dirty, but rough. And um and it it and that's you know that's just where we came from. That's the journey that we've taken to get here. It, it really is uh, great. We got lost here this morning, uh, Glenford and I. Um, that was a lot of fun. I just kind of walking around corners trying to find the office space. It's, it's, it's really difficult just to even find that. It has that <laughs> traditional feel. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a sign of it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get point. better at signs. <laughs> uh, no, that really, uh, really wonderful to, to see that. Um, and the amount of effort you put into restoration. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about the unique qualities of the warehouse, because... Uh, that alone, not just the size, but just how it works. Mm -hmm. So originally there were five warehouses here on site, warehouse A, B, C, D, and E. And currently we only have two. So warehouse B still remains. That's the longest warehouse of its kind in the world. Mm -hmm. um, a little bit of a mouthful. And then warehouse E, which is a huge concrete warehouse. So two very different styles of construction. Um, we have capacity for 100,000 barrels between those two warehouses. Um, the two originally that sat across the street, C and D, were about 40,000 barrels in capacity each, mm -hmm. and they were stunningly beautiful. I'd never seen them in person, which I kick myself on a regular basis for, because I was literally working three miles away for six years right. and never took you know the three-minute drive to, to get here to see it. But Say Levy. Um, warehouse A was a smaller twin to Warehouse B that would have held 15,000 barrels. And then, of course, Warehouse B holds about 32,000 barrels. Mm -hmm. When it was constructed, Colonel Taylor proclaimed that it was the most perfect, uh, perfectly constructed warehouse for matur maturing fine bourbon in the world. In the world. Yeah. <laughs> because Colonel, Colonel Taylor, of course, knew that. Um, all of the warehouses here on site were built with steam lines so that they could be heated during the winter. So this was a process that Colonel Taylor is attributed for this um, heat cycling um, process. So essentially keeping the whiskey warm during the winter so it doesn't become dormant. It forces it to keep moving in and out of the barrel. Uh, we are not hooking up the steam lines because that would require us to have quadrupled the size of our boiler to make sure that we had enough steam to get these warehouses warm. Um, but maybe sometime in the future because that was a big part of, of um, his uh, contributions to the industry was this heat cycling process. So the, um, the long warehouse, warehouse B, it's about four and a half stories, so we can get barrels all the way up to the peak of the roof and the top, and that's where I'm planning to store most of our early barrels because, mm -hmm. you know, hotter, hotter temperature, they yeah. mature a little faster, but you're still not 
accelerating maturation. So we're using full size barrels. I'm not going to use any small barrels so that we get a balanced um, maturation process. So, you know, if you um, over oak it, then that's what you taste. Um, If you don't give it enough time to breathe, then you're not getting the beautiful nuances that that, um, those reactions create, the, the fruit flavors that people don't often think of when they think of, you know, barrel maturation yeah um the so you've uh, already started distill distillation uh, how long ago was your first time uh, first, back in november back in november mm-hmm. um and so you're already seeing the effects in the warehouse and, and all that you get to start tasting the whiskey yes. uh, fun part of the job <laughs> yes it's it's incredibly fun so it's something that i am so excited about is the opportunity to learn this warehouse, yeah. you know, figure out from end to end and top to bottom where those sweet spots are, how it matures. So as it's constructed currently, there are ventilation fans only on one end. So it kind of, it, it has to pull air all the way from one side, all the way to the other to get the the proper, um, you know, airflow. So, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting to, to just taste. And we are strategically entering our barrels into different locations on different floors to try and get the most um, information that we can the, as fast right. as we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is completely different from because at Woodford Reserve, everything was figured out. They knew where the barrels had to go and mm-hmm. everything was figured out. And so here you're literally, that discovery process must be super exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, when we were first, uh, we were in Kentucky, I guess, uh, when, uh, two years ago, we uh, brought a drone and we were trying to fly over old distilleries. And so we got a couple. Uh, we came here, we had, I had like a uh, other team that we had just two cars. We came here and there's this big security guard that told us, nope. <laughs> You can't do it. Uh, but whiskey geeks love this distillery, love, you know, the stories behind Colonel Taylor and his effects, uh, influences on, on bourbon. Um, you know, and we we talk about it on the podcast all the time, the Baldwin Bond Act. Um, uh, but this is a beautifully historic site. Uh, you've got so much, uh, and so much work has gone into here. Um, tell us a little bit about the whiskey you're making. Cause this is, this is a lot of pressure. I know I've asked on Twitter if, you, if anybody had any questions for you and it was all around, you know, is there going to be a weeded bourbon was one question. Um, uh, public tours. Can I get here next week? Uh, barrel proof, mash bills, char levels. Um, so we're, we want to cover all this, um, uh, in detail. Cause I, you know, you we've talked about this already and that the program you have, it sounds super exciting. Uh, and sounds the sort of current program that whiskey geeks are just going to lose there, you know, over. Um, so, um, tell us, uh, but tell us, I, I love the story of, of the search for the yeast strain. Cause you do want to keep a little bit of your original, you, you want to keep a more traditional, uh, or, or an homage to, to Colonel Taylor, I guess, in That's some right. respects. That's right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about kind of what, what you've done in that department. Absolutely. So very early on, you know, before we had anything really in the distillery, I was in the laboratory tinkering mm-hmm. and de- developing uh, mash bells. Um, but even before that, when I first accepted the position here at Castle and Key to build this site with Will Arvin and, and Wes Murray, the first first bottle that we opened um, as a team to taste together was a bottle of pre-prohibition produced bourbon by Colonel Taylor that was distilled here in 1917. So it was a metal screw cap and literally almost shed blood to get into this bottle. And then I was just completely blown away. You know, I had tasted historic whiskeys before Mm -hmm. that, but never been, um, we'll say all that inspired, yeah. but Colonel Taylor knew what he was doing. These, um, this, this particular bottle of whiskey really stood out to me. Um, you know, those 
signature butterscotch notes. It was very sweet, but still had some complexity to it. Um, and, and then I knew, you know, it had to be a bottle and bond. We want in everything that we do for people to know how much we respect history and, and paying homage to um, the importance of the site and the importance of the original proprietor. But we're questioning and challenging a tradition, quite, mm-hmm. quite frankly, you know, making sure that everything that we do is thoughtful and, and um, intentional. So as soon as I tasted that, I was like, okay, we got to see what we can, what we can do, you know, uh, get something that, um, is reminiscent, but not identical. And the, mm-hmm. one of the primary ways that you build flavor in whiskey, aside from your mash bill is the yeast strain. So we have some friends down the road here in Danville, Kentucky. You all might be familiar from solutions and wilderness trail distillery. These guys are insanely uh, smart fermentation dudes. So they were coming out to see us just to kind of say hi and, and check out the, the project. This was very early on, like well before we had even turned on the lights in some places. <laughs> so we were digging around the distillery. I said, hey guys, since you're coming out, why don't you bring some of those fancy sampling tools that you have? And um, you know, long story short, we found this rusty old pipe in the in the yeast room um we were guided by the light of our iphones and it was just chopped off like almost as if they left and didn't clean anything because they knew they wasn't they weren't going to start back up but it was just full half full of like petrified mash so you could see the grain in it of course it was all filled with rust but we all got so excited so the guys took it back to their lab immediately started isolating a yeast strain and did fermentation with it and found that it made a lot of alcohol like i got all the results and got started getting really uh, excited and they said well don't get you know ahead of yourselves because we still have to figure out the, the dna of it and unfortunately, it was a going to get really nerdy for a second. Cryptococcus friedmani type of yeast strain versus, versus the Saccharomyces cerevisiae that is appropriate for distillery use. So it would have made a tremendous amount of alcohol, but not the flavor that you're looking for. Um, so that, you know, and that's something that, that comes with just experience and, and hands-on um, doing it and learning from experts in the industry is that you can make a ton of alcohol and your yield can be really high, but your flavor may not be there. Hmm. Uh, while I was in school for chemical engineering, I, I always said I, I would have come out of college being able to make a highly efficient ethanol plant, mm-hmm. but it certainly wouldn't have tasted good. <laughs> so right. it was taking the time and learning the art so that the, the yeast story is even though it's a kind of a sad story because we can't use that yeast strain in our product, we were able to use that as well as that 1917 sample to identify some genetically similar yeast strains. That's pretty amazing. So, so you had the old sample, you genetically identified, you broke it down, you know, you knew the f- uh, mash bill of that old uh, old bottle. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And uh, does, does did the bottle come with a distillery? Is that how this works? You buy a distillery and you get a bottle of what was produced there once, or uh, <laughs> or did that have to get procured elsewhere? Yep, it was pre- it was pre- procured elsewhere. So it from my what my understanding is it was in the back of some dusty old liquor cabinet at a horse farm nearby you know we're right here in the middle of horse country so uh, someone found it and they told Wes about it and he was like yes I would like to have those so um, he has the other bottle of the pair under lock and key somewhere in his house I'm sure amazing <laughs> um, I am I, we're, we're talking a lot about Taylor but uh, we're gonna move to Castle and Key um, the 
for for uh, listeners that um, don't know the full history, I'll give you the two second version, and you can tell me what I got wrong, because um, I usually tend to get these things wrong. So um, essentially, uh, the distillery had been purchased by many different companies over the years, um, but Beam Centauri owned it till some early 2000s and Buffalo Trace uh, or Sazerac rather purchased it. Um, and so their Taylor, Colonel E.H. Taylor lines are made at Buffalo Trace Distillery. They own the branding of the Taylor branding. Um, and you're probably not going to want to talk about this anyway, but the signs here, are, this is Castle and Key Distillery, uh, but you do have some historical Taylor signs here, beautiful, like in concrete made, uh, beautiful uh, Taylor signs. Um, so you won't be using the Taylor name, uh, obviously. This is the old Taylor Distillery. It's it's the historically accurate geographic mm-hmm. identifier for the location itself. So and it's the history of it. You know, yeah. they they old Taylor bourbon was made here by Colonel Taylor. This is where he resided for mm-hmm. the longest portion of his career. But we do not have any um, right to the brand. We're not making old Taylor whiskey, and and um, you know, quite frankly, we we don't want people to to think that we do. We're mm-hmm. we're building something new. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's talk about this. Yeah, let's, yeah. yeah. Colonel Taylor was a, a a prominent figure in the industry and did so much for it. But one of the things that got me most excited was the opportunity to to build something that I could put my stamp on. Mm-hmm. So Castle and Key, um, again, you know, in everything that we do, we strive to convey how much we respect history. But they're again um, kind of challenging the the traditional aspects of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, that's, that's amazing. And, um, you know, so let's, let's talk, let's, let's get the, some of the geek scores out of the way here. Um, <laughs> um, so we'll, uh, we'll start with some questions online. Uh, we got some online. So, um, uh, Dan side wants to know the barrel proof, uh, going in the mash bill and the char levels of the, of the barrels you're using. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll even go one step further. <clears throat> so um, j- just kind of starting from the grain. Mm-hmm. We're sourcing as much as we possibly can from Kentucky. We're using white corn in our bourbon recipe, and we're making two recipes. So we're doing one with a rye-based and one with a wheat-based. And then I think I mentioned earlier that we're using two different yeast strains. So essentially four different products, um, four different bourbon products that will be four years old because you know we're making bottled and bond. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the, the white corn. Um, we are distilling to one... 25 proof off our beer stilled, 135 proof in the doubler. We're then diluting that down to 107 for barrel entry for for bourbon, which is you know very low yeah. uh, industry wise and uh, you know um, has more historic. So more like what would have been produced here historically. Mm-hmm. Um, more uh, the more that you dilute it, the more flavor you extract from the barrel, and then of course you know, you need to keep it a little bit longer. So we do hope to age it um, more than four as as we progress over time. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah. the char level, I think I, did, I didn't answer that one quite yet, quite yet. But our barrels are, are really special. So we have chosen to partner with Speyside Cooperage, um, their brand new new barrel cooperage in Jackson, Ohio. Um, Speyside is a company that's been around for a long time, um, started in Europe. They do most of their a business in used barrel markets, which is a great partner to have if we want to do some interesting finishing. They have contacts, you know, worldwide in every spirit category imaginable. And then they're the largest, I believe, um, barrel maker of fine French oak. So using those coopering methods for a bourbon barrel um, in a 
facility that is very technologically driven. Um, they laser measure and cut every stave and, um, you know, they're really interested in doing some cool experimental things with us also. Mm-hmm. So we're using right now two different char levels. We've um, decided to go with a three and a four to try in, in our products to see how it really changes. Um, you know, there's scientific um, findings from every different distillery in, in every different master distiller has their ideal way to do things. But we're asking, you know, we're asking questions and finding our own answers so that we can intentionally and thoughtfully put these products together. So, um, for us, <clears throat> I think we're, we're leaning a little bit more towards the three char, but we'll just see, you know, where it leads us. Every barrel that we get is toasted. Um, and we've just started receiving some hand toasted barrels. So it gives you even more control over the exact length of time and the exact temperature. And again, a little bit more historic because most of the flavor in the barrel is developed during that toasting process. And then the char is, is really the regulation <laughs> right right um so by hand toasted you mean it's not doesn't go through those giant machines uh right it is it is set over was essentially a, a flame an open flame and then you can adjust the the temperature of the flame and how long it sits on there and rotate the barrel so Cook that it's evenly toasted yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah gotcha <laughs> absolutely drop some marshmallows in there that's awesome um <laughs> So two yeast strings and then uh, mash bills. Uh, what are what are your uh, what are your mash bill options? Absolutely. So I, I mentioned the the rye base and the wheat base. So each one is made with white corn. We're using seventy three percent, ten percent of either the rye or the wheat. Um, in the case of the rye, we're using as much rye that's grown in Kentucky as we possibly can. Um, there's just not a whole lot of quality rye that's grown here. So we have very strict standards. Our farmer that we partner with, Walnut Grove, is great. Um, we just completely bottom out. So <laughs> in right. some cases we're having to source um, some Northern European rye. And then uh, we're using a higher percentage of barley. So 7310, 17% uh, barley. So a little higher than industry standard because of flavor. So um, most people are using their barley just for the pure uh, fact of the enzymes that it converts starch to sugar. But I really like the flavor that it contributes. Mm-hmm. It's got the sweetness, the nuttiness that really balances out the, the spiciness of that Kentucky rye. So kind of more like in, in style of like a granddad, I guess, or the, the older um, uh, bourbons. Mm-hmm. Um, so so sorry, did I understand this correctly? So you're doing um, a weeded bourbon um, and a rye. Mm-hmm. Okay, but there's no gonna not just gonna be a rye bourbon or a bourbon with rye in it. It's just gonna be a weeded bourbon or a rye. Is that correct? No, we are doing a rye based bourbon, a wheat based bourbon, gotcha. and then a rye whiskey also. Yes. Okay, and a rye whiskey. Yes. Gotcha. Okay, so you're yes. doing a weeded bourbon, a regular bourbon with rye instead of the wheat, and then you also have your rye recipe, which is the reverse uh, rye instead of uh, corn. Well, a little bit lower percentage. Oh, so instead okay. of seventy three, we're going to sixty three. Okay. And then making up That's the right. difference in the um, in the corn. Okay. Yeah. Um, people are going to be very excited about a weeded bourbon. Uh, that's going to get people everybody excited. Uh, there's not enough weeded bourbon in Kentucky, right? I, I mean, agree with you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and it's also the aging process is so nice. You, you, you get to figure out where, where that sweet spot is on that's the age. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, um, you know, Jamie and I, um, uh, Jamie would have loved to have been here. Uh, she, she's a big fan. Um, Jamie and I, I always talk about it. We, we started asking people, like, what's your origin story with whiskey? Kind of how did you... How did you not not professionally, uh, personally? How did you start with whiskey? <laughs> that's that's a great uh, question because 
um, personally, I didn't have a taste for whiskey before I was introduced to it professionally. But you were born in Kentucky. <laughs> I was born in Kentucky in a dry county. So we had the same bottle of Jim Beam in the liquor cabinet for as long as I could remember. I was just building up dust year after year after year. Um, my mom, I think she prefers rum a little bit to bourbon. And then my dad was a, a scotch drinker. So oh, yeah. I like to say I taught him to drink bourbon. He taught, taught me how to drink scotch. So, um, But yeah, I, I had drank some what maybe some people would consider bourbon the bottom shelf stuff um a couple times maybe with coke or a chaser or something like that but i was more into you know wine and beer and tequila and then as um as i started working for a big liquor giant a global bourbon producer here in kentucky um i i knew that i needed to learn how to like it so I was going around the engineering department and just asking everybody that I could, you know, what do you do? How do you, how did you develop your palate? And some people gave me some crazy looks and then I got some weird answers, like just start by diluting it really heavily. <laughs> right, like a right. couple of drops of whiskey in your bottle of water. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it, it just, it, it, for me, what it came down to, and I think I, it really like everything made sense after a trip to Mexico, which mm. sounds weird. But uh, one of my colleagues down there was we were talking about finding your your palate for tequila, and he said something that I I found, and I, I um, talk about this a lot. He said, you know, I never discourage people from drinking it the way that they like to drink it. So mm. if you want a margarita, go go right on ahead. If you want a whiskey sour, go right on ahead. It's it's still got some of the whiskey flavors, and it's going to help to. Um, you know, kind of prime your palate for what's to come. Mm-hmm. So from there, you know, drink it the way you like it, however you like it, and then drink good stuff. So you're not going to get to like bourbon by drinking the bottom shelf stuff. Sorry, <laughs> bottom shelf whiskey, guys. Um, <laughs> you got to drink the good stuff. So for me, it was, um, and, and I started working for Brown Foreman the year that they started the R&D development for Woodford Double Oaked. So I was a okay. part of that process from its infancy. And um, that was the bourbon that really um, opened my palate because it's so sweet. It's like dessert. I really have a sweet tooth. It's kind of a problem. <laughs> so now I can just drink bourbon when I want to have a piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> I feel um, listeners probably know this already, but I, I have no sweets around the house because I, I compulsively eat <laughs> candy. I have it's around me. Um, Jamie always brings her Halloween candies over my place, and they're gone in a day, and then I never see them again. Um, no, that's that's really great. And and you, I mean, and not to understate this, uh, you at Woodford Reserve, you were the heir apparent. You were gonna, you were the heir apparent, the master distillership at, at Woodford Reserve. So um, in, in a short order, I mean, you started an internship there um, while you were getting uh, while you were in, in university. Sorry, college here. I yeah, say university, yeah. it's a Canadian <laughs> thing. Um, uh, but then you, you went back and you quickly ran up the ranks in, in Woodford Reserve. Yeah, I, I think that from very early on, my work ethic and my desire to learn, they, they um, at one point, my boss described me as a voracious learner. <laughs> and I really like that because I think it, it, it does describe you know, my personality. And I, I definitely get that from my mom. She is kind of a perpetual student, <laughs> um, always wanting to, to learn new things. So um, just my desire to learn and, and my 
you know, just raising my hand for every opportunity, whether that was sitting on the still at, at Jack Daniels at two o'clock in the morning, getting an hour of sleep and then coming back, you know, the next day to take still samples and figure things out. You know, I was, I was always doing that. So I think from very early on, they, they saw that in me and, um, and maybe there's a, a, a higher plan in the works that I just wasn't aware of because when I first got, got hired full time, they offered me the opportunity to do this, you know, first time production training management um, deal over in the bottling facility, um, which I worked, you know, all shifts and um, basically, you know, 16 hours a day, every day I was in there, but, you know, wouldn't trade that experience for anything because it was, really was trial by fire. And I think that might have been um, one of the one of the places that I earned my stripes. I had a little bit of sales experience, um, just this direct sales kind of deal. Um, called, uh, I would go to cheerleading compositions and essentially peddling these negative ionic uh, wristbands, like medical, I don't know. It, right. it was funny. Um, right, but right. I, I had a little bit of experience doing that. And then, of course, a, my uh, technical background and, and a pretty good palate, it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's amazing. You're working for a distillery. You're just, you get to taste every stage, every, which you is know. Maybe the best part of the job. Yeah, that's the best part of my job is going to distilleries and doing just that because I don't get to do that very often uh, at home, obviously. Do not have a home still yet and, and never will because I can't be trusted around fire. Um, no, that's really great. That's, um, and so, and I guess Castle and Key made you an offer you couldn't refuse uh, very early on in their, in their production. You come to the site and you see it yeah. and it kind of traps you. It's, it's one of those feelings where, um, you can feel the history, you can feel the soul, and you just want to be a part of it. So I knew that I wanted to be a part of the team that brought this back to life because it was so important to Kentucky, so important to Bourbon. And and because of the, the company that I worked for, I had such a love and, and respect for the history of the industry. Um, I just didn't want to see it die. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, my partners, Will and Wes, they had a really impressive business plan, like may not know w- one thing about producing bourbon, but they knew they were going to get the right person to do the job. So I just feel, you know, so fortunate um, that that they chose me to be a part of this team. Yeah. Yeah. And and you got to, you know, I said a partnership within the company as you mm-hmm. came on board. Um, and, and certainly what you're doing on the grounds is is going to be a great honor to the to the property. Um your uh, future plans here around the property specifically, um, you're you're considering having a hotel or a place for people to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're doing weddings here. Uh, you've done one wedding, I guess. Yes. You're doing a second yes. wedding. Um, and so you really kind of want to bring that elevated experience here in that we haven't seen in other distilleries in Kentucky. Absolutely. Um, and I something that Colonel Taylor had when, when he had the distillery here. Uh, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful story. Um, what are what are some of the dates, uh, you know, our listeners can expect to come here to visit um, and some of your future plans in that Absolutely. respect? So our, our opening date has, to this point, kind of been a sliding target because, as you know, I'm sure any big construction project has its hiccups. Um, and really, the the primary reason is we just want to do things the right way. Mm-hmm. You get one opportunity to, to make a first impression and our, our plans are big. Um, we want to create a place that honors Colonel Taylor and, you know, one thing I always find kind of interesting is that he found his inspiration in history and in Europe, even back then in the 1800s. And then we're finding our uh, inspiration in, in the history of what he built and in that, that same vein. 
So, you know, building a a distillery with a a different elevated experience, more like Napa Valley, bringing that to Kentucky um, versus, um, you know, kind of a a spot that you come, you do the tour, you do a tasting, and then you move on to the next. We want people to be here and feel differently and and, um, kind of stick around with us because we've got a a massive site. It's 113 acres. There's a lot to see, uh, a lot to experience, and... and, um, we're hoping that, that that'll be ready to go here by the, the end of the summer. So start looking for that around August time frame. And then in that same realm of time, we'll have um, some clear spirits available. So we are going to be making gin. We're going to be making vodka. Um, our decision to make gin was based on you know how gin is made. It can be very artisan, particularly because we're making it from scratch. We're using our bourbon and rye distillate to um, redistill to a higher purity and then infuse with some locally grown herbs and botanicals. And that just kind of plays back into the beauty of the site and, you know, Colonel Taylor's formal gardens. We've planted some herb, herb gardens with the help of fine gardener John Karloftis, um, very well known here in the state, made a name for himself in New York doing rooftop gardens. Um, but he's a country boy and, and loves the state and loves bourbon also. So we're very lucky to have him on board. Um yeah, so uh, tell us the name, Castle and Key. Um, so I, the distillery, where the distillery is actually located, is beautiful. Um, tell us how that name came across, uh, the castle on premise here, and where the key comes from. Absolutely. So for us, Castle is a little bit of imagery or kind of a, um, I don't know what I say, a metaphor for protection for the industry. So Colonel Taylor was producing whiskey in a day where it was only sold by the barrel. Um, it was sold to physicians for medication, and there were lots of complaints coming through. People were receiving tainted whiskey. They, it was actually making their patients more ill. So something was happening between the distiller and the consumer. Somebody was popping out the bung, taking some whiskey for themselves, and um, because the barrel was lighter in weight and in color, they were adding water back. They were adding um, acid to get the bite back. They were adding tobacco spit to get the color back. So you just didn't know. You you had no way to assure the quality of what you were getting. So for us, he built this castle as a symbol of protection for his whiskey that he saw as the best, um, the highest quality bourbon produced anywhere uh, this is uh, this is interesting because i've not heard this part of the story before so the the kind of running joke with bald and bond is the first consumer protection act and we all kind of laugh it's about alcohol and that's a funny story uh, but the, the medicinal aspect of this is interesting that it was actually not because well i guess maybe it was because people wanted to drink and get drunk however there it was a, the medicinal purposes they were it was prescribed by doctors or as a recommended you had your four ounces of alcohol every day and you were happy <laughs> whatever it was um, and that was mm-hmm. really from the medicinal point of view that's why it became important uh for uh in the u.s not necessarily because people wanted to drink (laughs) right though those two things are very closely related absolutely yeah absolutely yeah it it was more like a a pharmaceutical protection versus you know a a consumable beverage protection what a world that was back then i know right (laughs) (laughs) yeah fun fact um there were six million prescriptions written for medicinal whiskey during prohibition just in kentucky what reasons were the given like what, what would you have to go to go to a doctor just to be like oh uh, i imagine it's a lot like medicinal marijuana today so i have anxiety um, sure. you know any kind of 
ailments my my feet swell when, when you know um one one funny prescription that we found it just called it was called women's problems <laughs> so i don't know if it was women that had problems or men, men that, that were had having problems. problems with women like we don't really know yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah oh that's interesting mm-hmm. and that's why and so that's that's such a great okay and then the key part um and the key I, yeah yeah so castle of course the 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 castle itself um the distillery that he built to protect his whiskey and then the key is our beautiful keyhole shaped spring pool this was the key to colonel taylor's bourbon recipe it's a naturally fed underground limestone filtered aquifer that holds 140,000 gallons of water it is pristine beautiful looks like a roman bath because of course colonel taylor was not a subtle man he wanted people to know that this was the ingredient the most important part of his whiskey um so yeah it's the the key is um probably you know aside from the castle itself the most stunning architectural feature of the site and and potentially in in kentucky it's it's beautiful yeah it it is a a bit of rome it really is Mm -hmm. uh the um uh, right down to like the cement benches and, and, and everything else. Um, so people can't buy your whiskey right now, but there is a barrel program of sorts. Yes, you're correct. Okay. So there, we, we haven't like publicly announced it yet, um, um, but it, it's a, essentially a, a reservation program. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's a reservation society, something like that. Yeah. So our, our members sign up, they pay a um, membership fee, and then they have the right to purchase you know this barrel that they've come to the, the distillery to have an experience with. They've tasted, they barrel, they roll it into the warehouse, mm-hmm. and then f- you know each year they'll get a sample to see how um, the whiskey is maturing. Mm-hmm. And then at the, the end of the line, they'll go home with roughly um, 200 bottles of, of bourbon to call their own or rye whiskey. So we're doing experiences with bourbon, both the traditional and the weeded and the um, rye whiskey currently. Um, and your clientele, it, was it like liquor stores specifically or private individuals? All across the board. All across the board. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, do you want to talk about costs? Of the like bottle price, yeah. So it, it's a little bit like reading a crystal ball, right? Like we think we know where we want to be in right. in the premium range, but right. not astronomical. So there's this balance, and everybody yeah. knows this. Yeah. You either get it's an, and there's kind of a tipping point. So there's this this premium price range that still gets you lots of volume, but if you go up, you know, two more dollars, you're seen <laughs> as ultra premium, and then your case volume drops dramatically. So we're we're trying to to ride that line. So it's probably not going to be you. Know, know $80 a bottle although we may have some you know um, distillery selects that, that could be in that range or maybe even more if we decide to go super fancy but I think our, our everyday bottle and bond will be um, you know, definitely premium yeah um, price range yeah because it's gonna be bottle and bond you're gonna have your mm-hmm. sweet spot of the warehouse mm-hmm. do you kind of know where that sweet spot is yet do you are you getting a feel for that not not yet not so yet. We're, we're still basically on the um, first two floors I haven't wouldn't put anything away up on the very top yet right so it's still going to take a little bit of time yeah how long did you say to fill that entire warehouse how long now you do have barrels in the warehouse it's not an empty warehouse i should mm-hmm. say that that you're you're leasing the space or we are yeah yes. um but how long would it take you to fill that entire warehouse with your own whiskey so our annual production as we sit today is about twelve thousand barrels ish so if you know we have room for about hundred thousand barrels on site so it would take us nearly a decade to fill every spot 
our of our, of our own if we were producing only for ourselves, which we're not. Right, right. Um, so we are we are contract producing for other people, and we're contract aging for other people. So we have about almost seventeen thousand barrels in there currently. So our longest <clears throat> longest warehouse in the world will be full by the end of the year. So we're going to have to start on our other massive warehouse that holds about 62,000 barrels here in very short order. And that is also a beautiful warehouse, uh, cement structure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, can you, I, you'll describe it better than I have. Uh, but <laughs> so I, I think the way our, our gardener, John Karloftis, describes it is actually um, pretty accurate. I'll, I'll tell you how I, how, how I describe it and then how, how he describes it. So I like to joke with people and say um, it was a set for Lord of the Rings, like in the, um, <laughs> the caverns. <laughs> yeah, the, where absolutely. The, yeah, where the, um, I guess they're... Oh, what are they called? The goblins. I don't know. I I love Lord of the Rings, but I can never get it right. So it was the Lord of the Rings set or the Titanic is what John Karloftis said. Oh, yeah, so the ballroom kind of, yeah, and the, the Titanic. Closest, yeah. The closest that you'll be to being underwater, but not being underwater. Oh, you're talking about Lord of the Rings, the orc, whatever, the yes, un, under yes. the, in the in the mountain. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, got it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is actually, yeah, That that's perfect, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so super high ceilings. I think they're about 14 feet. Um, or or a little bit more, so you would have been able to fit, you know, six barrels on their side high on each of the floors. There are four double floors essentially, um, and then you have these massive um, poured concrete columns. Some of them are circular, some of them are square, but it's it's beautiful. You know, kind of dim light as it's um, kind of streaming through these wire glass block uh windows so yeah it's a very very special place um yeah it, it, it really is it's uh um the um well, the one last question i have for you i think this this is going to get a lot of people excited as well um you're uh, using open fermenters um tell me uh, about how you're fermenting different things depending on the season and and, and why mm-hmm. so one thing that that i've been thinking about a lot, particularly here and having open fermenters. Um, we don't have a lot of, um, what's it, HVAC going on in the castle. So yeah. everything's just happened kind of naturally. So we're using two different yeast strains and I'm selecting the, the yeast strain based on the season that we're going to use. So in the, the winter time when, you know, everything outside is dead and, and the air is kind of stale, um, you know, you don't have to worry about foreign things so much floating into the fermenter. Each distillery has its own DNA. It has its own thumbprint, its own set of of microorganisms that live in the pipes and on the walls and, and in the environment. So in the wintertime, we're going to be using a our, our first yeast strain that is much more fruity and floral and complex. Um, and then in the um, springtime, when we have all of the flowers and things blooming outside that would potentially change the flavor of the, of the open fermenters, we're going to be using a more earthy and spicy uh, yeast strain. So looking at it a little bit more scientifically and, and just, you know, like, like in everything, being thoughtful in the way that, that we're producing it. Yeah, um, and that that's amazing. I think it's going to, like I said, whiskey geeks are going to go nuts over that because um, you're going to have your special bottlings and there's going to be seasonal and there's going to be single barrel. It's very exciting. Where do you see this company being? In, like, where do you see yourself in uh, Castle & Key in 10 years? Um, so five years, you're probably going to start selling <laughs> yeah. whiskey. Uh, mm-hmm. 10 years, what's the, what's the dream? Hopefully we're, you know, we're growing faster than, than we can, than we have been able to imagine. Um you know, I, I I really don't feel like the bourbon boom is slowing down any, anytime soon. Mm-hmm. 
you know, 10, 10 years from now, I, I hope that we have some international markets. Hopefully we'll be up in Canada. Um, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm just, it, it's hard to say what, what the future will bring, but I can't wait to have a centennial or not centennial, but a, um, you know, Decade ago, decades decidal. Yeah, I have no. I, I, I have the problem with this all the time. <laughs> Our ten-year anniversary. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's really hard to imagine how it's going to feel. like get goosebumps, kind of thinking about yeah. dumping that first barrel, and then you know, f- f- five more years down the road, how's that going to feel? So yeah, it's just all really, really exciting. Yeah, it, this is a magical place, um, uh, and you're you know you shine through here uh, at the distillery. So this is wonderful. Thank you for giving us a tour uh, today. Um, we're gonna have some more. We're gonna have show notes uh, in the links. You'll have some show notes uh, from stuff we talked about today, uh, and I'll post some articles as well. Um, thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you. It was my pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. We raise the roof down when